Hi there. Welcome to Conversations with a Wounded Healer. I'm your host, Sarah Bueno. Thanks so much for joining me today. I love having you here. If you have not been here before, uh, my name is Sarah and I am a therapist in Chicago and I'm a podcaster and I do all sorts of other stuff, but podcasting is one of my favorite, favorite, favorite things to do. And we have a lovely conversation to share with you today. However, first, this is a confession, a bit of a confession. I don't podcast with an idea of like expectations. And so therefore, I sometimes don't go into it with the most business-minded of minds, I guess. And I was listening to another podcast recently, and they were like, okay, we're only going to do a 20-minute intro today. And my approach to the intros has always been like, nobody wants to listen to that shit. Like they want to get to the guest. That's all they want to hear. And as I was listening, I was like, oh, like I care about these people. It's a cute podcast called Let's Get Haunted because I'm super into ghosts and shit. And I just thought it was so sweet. And I'm like, I wonder if people want to know about what's going on with me, little old me. So I guess I wanted to share a couple of things with y'all today. I have just finished watching Alan V. Farrow. Trigger warning, it's really hard to watch if you have your own history of child abuse, sexual abuse. It is really, really rough. And it really triggered a lot of shit for me. And I'll probably I'll probably talk about it in some capacity more more deeply in another way. But I just I don't know. I just wanted to share with y'all that that was something that I was working through is kind of being triggered by watching some of these shows. So that's happening. I am trying to move into a new office space with our practice, Head Heart Therapy. And that's exciting and scary because we have no idea when we're going to see people in person again. It's also weird to kind of like talk about myself. I feel <laughs> I feel like in a lot of these other podcasts, they're talking to each other. So that's all I'm going to share with you right now. That's what's going on. But also from listening and learning from these other podcasts, they said the names of their Patreons. And I thought, I have never done that. I told y'all I would thank you for writing reviews, but I've never thanked the people who are actually paying me money. So I'm going to tell you right now, the folks who are kind enough to pay $5 a month and for that $5 a month, we have meetups when the world is in our favor and technology works. So we're going to have a little meetup this month, and I'm really excited about it. So thank you to Mikhail B., Ashley R., Susan P., Ruth A., John B., Naomi S., Rachel Y., Margaret R., and Vanessa L. Some of y'all have been Patreons for a really long time, and I am just super appreciative that you show up. And if you are like, wait a minute, I want my name read aloud or I want to donate on Patreon, just go to patreon.com, search for Conversations with a Wounded Healer, and you can donate as little as a dollar a month, which is still amazing. And I will send you a cute little welcome gift if you're willing to give me your address. Promise I won't show up at your house because I've got enough stuff to do. But yeah, thanks for listening. Thanks for hanging out. Now let's talk about today's incredible, amazing, wonderful guest. Today, we are speaking with Celeste Meyer. Celeste is a self-identified brown fat femme who lives, loves, and works on unceded Muscogee Creek territory known as Atlanta, Georgia. 
In her private practice, she predominantly sees BIPOC, queer, trans, and fat clients as they heal from trauma and focus on liberation through connection and somatic-based therapy. This was such a lovely, heartful conversation, and I actually got to meet Celeste in person recently, and she's just as wonderful in the flesh as she was over technology. So please enjoy my wonderful interview with Celeste Meyer. Celeste, welcome to Conversations with a Wounded Healer. Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm excited to talk with you. I am excited to talk with you, OMG. And you are friends with my BFF, Livia Budries. So that's how we got connected. And I'm so excited she connected us. Yeah, Livia is pretty awesome. She's easy to love. Right? I know. As soon as you say that, though, I think her reaction to that would be like this very Scorpio like pushback. Without a doubt. Yeah. Well, enough about her. Let's talk about you. So tell us who you are and what you do. Yeah, I'm Celeste Meyer. I always, whenever I ask this question, like I don't want to lead with career because like I want to be so much more than that. <laughs> so, you know, kind of leading in with identity stuff. I'm a fat bodied South Asian queer woman and I'm living in Atlanta, Georgia, what used for is unceded Muskoka Creek land. I have a pretty good setup. I've worked really hard on myself and trauma to be at a place in my life where it's like, okay, I'm not living maybe successful by, you know, capitalist means financially, but like I've managed to create a pretty yummy, juicy life for myself with community and friends and partner. And that does involve career, which is a private practice therapist. I'm an SEP somatic experiencing practitioner. I have to do EMDR. So I always say trauma specialist. And I work mainly with people of color, as well as other fellow queer folks, trans folks, fat bodied folks, a lot of marginalization coming through my door. Mm-hmm. I love that you were talking about like, you know, you're successful, but not in capitalist standards. Shauna Murray Brown, have you heard of her? Yeah, I'm obsessed with her. Like, I want to be her best friend, but she's too busy for me. But she just posted something on Instagram the other day about like, is it possible to be successful and be engaging with white institutions without like getting torn down by them? And somebody else was like, just what you said, like my success would not be success in a capitalist size, but it's success to me. And that's literally what's actually important. I mean, it's hard for me these days not to think about that in relation to how prevalent depression is. Where right? it's like if we could get our brains wrapped around success and happiness that doesn't have to do with financial income, what we have and what we don't, career or like loving our career at the forefront, how could we create lives that we want to be engaged and live in? Right. It would be different. Are you a millennial? I don't know. Am I? I'm in my mid 30s. So yes. Okay. Because I'm just thinking about the promises that millennials were sold because of all of the generations before, right? I'm I'm a Gen Xer, like on the very tail end of Gen X. I am so young. I'm 42. And our generation was kind of this like latchkey kid generation where people were like, go out to play. And then they forgot that we were there until we came home and wanted food. And then your generation, they were like, oh, we're going to do it differently with you. Like, we're going to make sure you know you're special and you get everything that you want. You're going to get a house and you're going to have the career you want, all of these things. And (laughs) yeah, I'm in a weird end of that. So I was born in Canada, Toronto, Canada. 
I don't know if it's different culturally. My mother's from India, but I I feel like I didn't get that millennial upbringing. Like I've I've heard Mm. that experience and I definitely have peers who are maybe a little younger than me or around my age that had that. But I also didn't quite have what you had either. You know, I remember like we did have a friend. I did feel like I was on my own a lot in a way that was okay, but I was left to be my own person, but not in this, like like my parents weren't cheerleaders for that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I can see where, you know, with clients and with even friends and peers who are a little younger, like they've really been sold this, everything's going to be great dream that's hurting them so badly. Yep. And contributing to the depression. And then also that generation too had social media earlier in their lives, right? I didn't get Facebook until I was in my late 20s, which I can't even imagine what social media actually does to the developing brain in terms of comparison, right? Like that's obviously the thing that comes up with depression a lot is people are like, oh, my life is nothing compared to, you know, I was reading something today about, I can't remember which Kardashian, they all look the same to me, but one of them did some sort of Photoshop with their body and people were like outraged about it. And if I had to grow up looking at that all the time, like I literally don't know what I would have done. Yeah. So my own recovery, I'm in recovery for an eating disorder. I started being a fat teenager pretty early on. And when I treat eating disorders now in young folks, social media is at the forefront of every discussion is like the comparing. And Mm. I mean, I remember comparing, but I was like only comparing to the other girls I was in school with. Yes. Like occasionally there was like, oh, this person on MTV or, (laughs) but the rate of how many images they're seeing that they're comparing to that are Photoshopped and that are so idealistic, even in the posing, is just so much higher than it was when I was young. Mm. I really don't know how children are making it today, but let's not be super sad. Let's go. We could, but let's talk more about you specifically. So you know, you talk about being in recovery from an eating disorder, and I'm guessing that there's some trauma in there somewhere, right? We we all often specialize in the things that we know from the inside out. So I'm curious how you came to decide you wanted to become a therapist. Like, what was that journey like for you? What led you here? Yeah. So I entered college. I went to the University of Florida to be a pharmacist. I did really plot twist. And I was studying that and I was like, I'm going to help people by getting them their meds. And I felt like it was going to be easier than being a doctor Mm. and maybe equally as lucrative. So I I thought that was going to be a sweet deal. And I kept studying and I was miserable. I couldn't connect to the material. And I remember sitting very clearly this moment in organic chemistry and I'd studied all weekend long and it culminated in going to TGI Fridays with some friends on Sunday night and I remember the waiter asked me what can I get you and I literally looked at the menu I couldn't read it it was just all blurred I looked up at him and I started crying (laughs) it was like my poor little brain was so scrambled from like just working so hard and not being a human I was trying to be a study robot so the next day in organic chemistry, I was just like having this weird existential crisis ready to take this test, though. And the kids in front of me, kids being college students, they said, it's worth it. You know, they were talking about how horrible their weekends were as well. It's worth it. We're going to be doctors. And all of a sudden, I was like, 
I'm going to be a fucking pharmacist? <laughs> like, it just hit all of a sudden. Mm. I was like, what am I doing? Mm. Like, I'm not attached to this enough mm. for this amount of suffering. Like, what is this about? At the time, I was a resident assistant in the dorms, and I freaking loved it. Like, that is what lit up my life, was hosting these, like, Halloween decorating contests and creating community and having everybody play games and cook together and check in about their mental health and helping them find resources all over campus. And I think that in combination with also being in group therapy already for my eating disorder, just had it really come clear to me that I was like, oh, I want to help people and it's not through medication. I'm not anti-medication, but that was not going to be my access point for it. Right. So I switched. I switched over to counseling or psychology and I told my parents I wanted to be a therapist and they shed some tears because they were a little attached to the, the pharmacy tree, which was, oh. I think, a really good thing to notice. So it's like, oh, you know, am I choosing things for myself or am I choosing things for others? I totally chose my undergrad degree based on what my mom thought I would should be for sure. I was a music ed major and I hit the time in high school. I was like, I'm going to be a music teacher. I'm going to come back to my hometown. I'm going to marry my high school sweetheart. And that's what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. And I, I wouldn't have made it honestly. Like, and I, I say this without joking, I might've killed myself because that was something I struggled with, with suicidal ideation. So it was the wrong imprint, right? Our parents love to have those imprints on us. So I, I feel that. I mean, I totally relate to that where it's like, I remember my first semester, I started abusing amphetamines, you know, study drugs, Terra and Adderall and all this stuff so that I could study, stay up hours upon hours and have this like freak out suicidal, what am I doing here moment, all mm -hmm. for pharmacy, you know, like, that was a huge part of it, you know, and, and in terms right. of eating disorder, not being hungry from using amphetamines was like super working for me on some level. That's how I ended up in an eating disorder group, which is kind of a funny story. I was drug seeking, essentially. <laughs> and I wouldn't have called myself that at the time. Of course. But I went Looking in back. and I was like, I feel so much better on Adderall. I need to tell them so that they will give me my own Adderall script. In that one interview with a therapist, I told her, I said, I feel so much better. I'm not hungry. I don't even think about food. And she heard, mm -hmm. she heard the little hook in there. She goes, yeah. oh, I think you should try this group we have called Making Peace with Food. And I, at the time, what I heard, because I hated myself so much, I thought, oh, it's going to be a group of fatties, and they're going to help me lose weight. Yeah. So I was like, sure, I'll go to that group so I can get thin. Yeah. And lo and behold, I, I show up, and it's a very different group than what I thought it was going to be. But something kept me going. Hmm. How long did you end up going? Seven years. What? That's amazing. <laughs> well, that's not quite true. I went to the University of Florida for seven years. I think I went in and out of that group a couple times. I took a semester or two away or I convinced myself I was doing better with Weight Watchers. So I didn't actually have an eating disorder. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I played some games. The last three years when I was in grad school, I was dedicated to my recovery. I didn't mess around that those three years solidly I attended. That's awesome. And what you describe sounds, I'm an Al-Anon and it sounds very much like akin to somebody who goes into Al-Anon to get their loved one to stop drinking <laughs> that oh, like, yeah. yeah, I'm going to go here to lose weight. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm an Al-Anoner as well. So yeah. Yeah. OMG. <laughs> and that, I mean, that's a, those are funny stories too, for sure. But I, I mean, my first experience with 12 step was Overeaters Anonymous. Mm -hmm. I'm sure it's helpful for some, but 
my experience was that it was encouraging more disordered eating for me I agree. because of language around abstinence from like flour and sugar. I'm like, oh, this is just another diet. Yeah. And I was already in on diets weren't working, but I mm-hmm. was getting clear that my family was chaotic as heck. <laughs> and that's where I think Al-Anon really was a game changer for me. Unpacking those levels. Oh my goodness. Are you still a grateful member? No, I would I'd probably say no is the right answer there. I haven't been to Al-Anon at all in the pandemic. Mm-hmm. I'm so relational that the mm-hmm. Zoom piece and Zoom for work. And as I hear him say that, I'm like, man, this is a load of shit. You know, the excuses I'm giving. <laughs> Maybe this is what I needed to get my ass into a meeting. But Aww. I can send you an amazing one. Oh, I would love that. So I guess one of the things I'd love to hear in terms of of your work right now is we're in a pandemic. It's been a year almost that we've all been in this situation. People are losing jobs. There's a lot of desperation, a lot of high acuity. I'm curious if you're seeing any specific things because you just you just take sliding scale basically, right? So you're seeing clients who are who are really really impacted by everything that's happening right now. Like, are you seeing any themes of people struggling with anything in particular? Yeah. Quick side note: I'm going to come back around to that. So okay. Something you just said kind of sparked where I'm like, I'm super passionate about it, and here's a chance to tell some people. Tell us about sliding scale. Yeah, <laughs> let's do it. I think sliding scale gets you know a hard knock. Where I hear a lot, especially amongst white therapist peers and, and peers with a lot of privilege, like kind of encouraging each other, like charge what you're worth, you can do it, make the money. And it's like, well, yeah, you're valuable and charge what you're worth. And yet, who are you trying to serve? You know, and like, I've met people who with their fees, I, I can tell you one time I really stepped in it where somebody said they charge 275 an hour. I immediately said like, oh, so you only see white people. Right. Rich white people at that. And she was like, uh, well, <laughs> you know, and she admitted, she's like, yeah, actually, all my, I hadn't thought about it, but my practice, I am only seeing white, predominantly white men. And then I was like, oh, right. I like white men as humans. And I don't really, that's not my client of choice. And I'm like, who is my client of choice? You know, like, where mm. are the communities I want to impact? And what do they have access to? Yeah. And I've created a sliding scale document I'm happy to share with people. Actually, I shouldn't take credit. I adapted <laughs> uh, who I love giving credit to who really did the work here. My beloved dance teacher, Joy, who is TikTok famous, moves with Joy. What style of dance? I don't know, like cute and adorable. Just cute. <laughs> awesome. Okay, cool. Yeah little choreographed accessible like her, her whole thing is accessibility she does like seated dances and she's, oh. a, she's amazing and I freaking love that she's become TikTok famous which That's is so random wonderful. for this like beautiful little unicorn in her 40s she created the sliding scale document because she noticed that the dance class didn't have people of color attending mm. and she's like how have I created something that isn't accessible and so she put together this tiered system, not based on income, because I think sliding scale so often is based on income. Mm-hmm. And then there's this like dehumanizing proves that you're poor, you know, where it feels like charity and looking down. And so what I do is I give people this form I put together and I ask them to self-select their fee to take time to really check in with themselves. And when I share this with other therapists, they're always shocked that I make a decent amount of money doing that. And it's like, oh, what do we really believe about our clients if we believe they would rip us off if they all could? Mm-hmm. 
honestly, only the rich ones do that. <laughs> like, yeah, you're not you're not shocking me, and that's what I've shared yeah. with people. Is I said the people who will pay the lowest fee are at their sliding scale, and then they come in and they mention their vacations and that they just bought a pet ferret and a you know, all this like kind of random stuff. I'm like, Oh, if you have that much money, like, why are you paying me 60 an hour? Like, so I really kind of have gotten a good spiel where I I ask people to spend time reflecting and I tell them there's only so many slots at each level that, you know, I hope you'll be mindful. Oh, that's how you make it sustainable is that you only have a certain amount per each. I mean, that's what I say. I haven't been as tight at doing that. But this is where like the beauty of people has really shown up. I have people paying higher than the top of my scale because Hmm. they want to support others. Hmm. And I have people who self-adjust where they're like, you know, I bought a house or I've gotten an increase or I've realized I've re-looked at my budget. I value my time here. I want to pay $20 more. Like it's been really beautiful to see how people show up respectful Hmm. of my time. And I get to feel into the connection and unvalued. That's really cool. It is really cool. Atlanta, at least from what I've heard from Livia and from some other folks down there, it sounds like it sounds like the market generally doesn't take insurance that a lot of people just don't get on the panels. Is that right? I mean, I'm one of those people who hasn't. I've never been paneled. And it's so interesting. I was just talking on Saturday with a colleague in Colorado and she was talking about being paneled as if there was no other choice available. And I was like, oh, to me, it's like I would only be paneled if I absolutely had to. It depends on the market. In Chicago, you, I mean, you don't have to. There are people who absolutely don't do it. But then again, it's like you're self-selecting and seeing clients who can pay whatever your rate is. And it's such a challenging topic. And it's something I think about as a business owner. You know, if I were a private practitioner, I would do things differently. But as a business owner, I have to make sure that I'm paying my staff. I have to make sure I'm paying the person who does the billing and paying the liability insurance and all of these other things. And so I would never make the decision for the practice to not take insurance and to do what you're doing. I couldn't do it. I couldn't make it work. Yeah. And that sucks that our system is set up that way. Well, and that's where, you know, I'd love to invite you into some discomfort around please playing with how much of that is a belief of scarcity for you. Because I used to think that where it's like, oh, like if you had told me even three, four years ago, you'll be all sliding scale, like that I would show clients my sliding scale. I would be like, no, that's a way to sink the ship. Because I really thought like, if people have the choice to choose what they pay, they're going to undervalue me. Mm -hmm. And I was so sure that everybody would pick the lower fees. I'm making more money than I've ever made before. How many clients do you see a week? I think right now I'm at like anywhere between 20 and 23, 24. Wow. Yeah. So that's a totally manageable schedule. And the majority of them self-select to pay, you know, a mm. full rate. Mm. five, hundred fifty, mm. And then I've got people who are self-selecting like significantly lower, 60 or less. You know, it's worked out <laughs> at least for yeah. now. But I noticed in myself, there was a big challenge of overcoming scarcity and belief that I wasn't going to be okay the work, it's like, oh, if I do the good work, if I am accessible, the people I'm going to work is going to be fulfilling and pay me back energetically, soul-wise, and that the money will show up. And it super has. And this is the difference between 
because I was, you were researching NARM, right? Whether or not you want to do NARM. And I just started becoming a training assistant for them. And we were in a seminar and it was all about like our reactions to when cultural differences and diversity and issues like that show up in the training. And it was just a series of questions of inquiry. And I noticed for myself as I was answering the questions, my question was different if I was thinking about myself in my role as a boss with my practice versus being a TA in NARM where I'm not the boss and the buck doesn't step with me and I don't have the responsibility of other people on my shoulders. Because if, you know, when you say scarcity, my initial reaction is, no, I'm all about abundance. And I am. And yet I get afraid that I can't help people pay their bills. That part of it is what turns the scarcity on. It's such a subtle, interesting thing. And now I'm like, fuck you. I have to take this to therapy and think more about it. Well, and so I, I try to think I've got associates who work with me, you know, with them when we think about the bills. I'm like, how do I put their earnings in their hands? How do I get them more of their money? How do I create a structure that allow, I mean, this is something I'm real passionate about too. It's like when I became a private practice therapist, it was kind of by mistake. I was like between jobs after leaving a clinical setting and they were like, Hey, can we send you referrals? And I was like, Oh, I guess, <laughs> you know, I'll find somewhere to practice and see somebody. And I, I thought I was going to still find another full-time job. And I started private practice running a halfway house. So I had no bills in terms of the house. I got free living mm. to help run it. And I was on food stamps. I ended up on food stamps in the first six months of starting a private practice. I'm like, oh, this is not accessible as a career path. Mm. It just feels too hard to get into. And how often I feel like I meet people who say they can't start a private practice until later in life, if they have a spouse, that it relies on a partner having a second income to be able to have it. Or that they have to work salary for a root practice where they feel like they're taken advantage of. So from that point, <laughs> I've tried to figure out how do I create a practice structure where people are responsible for their own work and their own income, but they're also feeling loved and supported by the group mm -hmm. practice piece. Mm -hmm. And I get it. There's a lot in that structure that feels scary and, yeah. and hard. But it's like, I want to believe in everybody else's ability to fly and encourage them while also kind of holding a safety net below them, but also not being responsible for them needing to fly, you know, like, <laughs> mm -hmm. so I've had to really sit with like, what is my role as clinical director in helping people grow as professionals? Mm -hmm. Well, I should probably set up a consultation call with you so I can actually pay you for your advice. And <laughs> nobody wants to listen to me ask you questions about that. But I have been thinking about, you know, I took Shauna's course once and then I wanted the whole staff to take it. So I'm taking it with them again. And so I'm just kind of figuring out other ways that I can apply her liberation focused framework to everything, you know, and yeah. I mean... I was having this conversation with a friend recently to completely like opt out of white supremacy and capitalism. Like you can't just completely unless you really want to like <laughs> live in the middle of nowhere, you know, all of that sort of thing. And obviously I'm not going to do that anytime soon. But what I keep trying to tell myself is like making the small changes, even thinking about this, like so many practice owners will never even have this discussion and never even think about it. And so there's like a, I'm trying to weigh because I'm a person who will just start to pressure myself and judge myself for all the things I'm not doing right. And it's like, let's at least be like, okay, you're thinking about it and you're talking about it 
and you're seeking information, <laughs> it's better than nothing. Yeah. I mean, I think that's where we all have to start is curiosity. How can I apply this? Right. You know, and I love to tell everybody, it's like, ask black and brown women, don't suck them for labor, but like, <laughs> but you know, like follow their leadership. Look at mm-hmm. how black and brown therapists are doing, you know, stuff. Or, or if you've got employees in your practice that are black and brown, ask them, check in on their contentment and what they see that could help create community structures with what they're experiencing. Because without white supremacy is strongly internalized, there's just a different filter often for people of color. We're coming to the table with a different understanding of supporting one another, mm-hmm. which is available to white folks. <laughs> It just isn't the first instinct for many because of how thick the water of white supremacy is in our culture. Yeah. And my little growth pod for Shauna's class, one of my people was mentioning like, yeah, I was just thinking about my friend group and how often I think I have to do it by myself. And we're always like supporting each other's individuality, but it's not an actual community. Yeah. It's sad and painful for me to sit with that too long because it's like, how much better the world could be if we could get that one piece. You know, I have a friend who recently is getting divorced. She said after her last big serious breakup, she made sure she was never in the position again to have her whole world crumble with one person leaving. Right. And she was kind of thanking herself, past self for that, because here she is going through a divorce. And she's like, yeah, it sucks. And I'm okay. Because there's community care. How do we switch over to like nurturance and community care is such a beautiful right. way to reframe that I think gives us hope. It makes life better and easier. And it probably looks like less productivity or work driven success. Yes, absolutely. And if there was more community care, then making less money is more sustainable too, because it's not sacrifice. It's not competition. Yeah. Mm. Well, let's shift over to the healer talk. So how do you feel about the term healer in terms of what you do? I mean, I think it's interesting, you know, coming from the conversation we were just discussing, you know, that to me, like, healer sometimes feels a little crispy, like, like, it's almost an appropriated term. Mm. Like, I think of healers having this more like indigenous root than, you know, medicine, which of course is like health care, which is technically healing work. <laughs> I mean, not even technically, it's literally healing work, but it feels like healthcare and healing are so different. So different. So, you know, calling myself a healer, I say, yes, yes, I am a healer. And I also want to be careful of the nuances. because It's like, oh, I would never call myself like a shaman. <laughs> even if I took classes in shamanic healing, like I, in this South Asian body, would never be that. And I'm South Asian. Would I call myself a guru? No. (laughs) Like, I think I have to really tap into like, what is mine to claim? And I see myself as someone who guides individuals on their healing journeys and their healing path. And I see myself as getting to be a part of healing work. But maybe taking on that word healer as me doesn't feel as strong a fit. Yeah, I've had people say like, Yes, that's what I do, but I'm not going to put that title on my business card. <laughs> right. Yeah. And what people do. Yeah, I know. <laughs> not, and no judgment. It's just not, well, maybe a little judgment, but it's not my thing. Right. And what I've learned asking this question over a hundred times now is, is that 
everybody has the same answer, but it depends on whether you put the weight on yourself to be like the fixer versus knowing that you're not the fixer and like holding healing in that respect, right? And I hear you saying that, like, I am a facilitator of healing, right? I am there to support people through their work. And in my mind, that's what a real quote unquote real healer is anyway, is not somebody who thinks that they're actually doing this to you. (laughs) Right. Like, I think the most beautiful sessions I've ever led, I was almost like nowhere in the room personally. Yeah. Yeah. And yet it was present, which is it's kind of a weird thing to explain, but it, like I feel really clear that there's moments where I'm like, oh, I'm a vessel. Like I'm here doing something else. And not like I'm freaking special. I'm a vessel. Like just that attuned healing is something shows up and you're a vehicle for it, but you're not what shows up. Something else shows up. Right. And I'd call that maybe the healer or the healing energy. I'm pulling on this thread because I'm really just totally curious about your answer. Like, what do you think that is? Like, I would call that God or universe or spirit or something like that. Like, what do you think that is? I mean, I use those same words. I had a Catholic upbringing and then Mm. I had a really strong, like, to hell with this shit. (laughs) So I, I came far away from the term God for a while. And that's when I started saying, like, the universe. And then I came into to Buddhism and the universe has been the one I say probably the most often. And mm-hmm. kind of interestingly enough, I've come back around to like goddess lately. Yes. Last couple of years where I'm like, when I start thinking, it turns out I might just have been mad at men because when <laughs> I get around, yeah, the more I worked on that, the clearer I was like, oh, having a divine the divine mm-hmm. be associated with feminine qualities of creation mm-hmm. and nurture and mothering like that all feels juicy and good to me mm-hmm. so saying like yeah goddess shows up or energy the universe provides you know that kind mm-hmm. of airy fairy metaphysically talk i love it i think all of that this you know i think within somatic experiencing you know, there's probably ways to explain it away with nervous system states, but like, I love being a little detached from that and a little more curious about the parts that feel magical and like, what yes. does the world feel magical whenever it can? Because yes. it's heavy enough. I love that perspective. That's how I feel too, because I have people in my life who are very like science-based and, you know, must live with facts and like, you know, prove these sorts of things. And it's like, science can't explain everything and science knows it can't explain everything and science will tell you when something is a miracle they'll be like i got nothing yeah Yeah. (laughs) so there's got to be some other thing right it's i don't know i mean when i first came to 12-step work i really struggled because of the god talk and i think what Mm -hmm. came around for me was this concept of universal order and cycles Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. it hit me with the help of a really good sponsor (laughs) that, you know, like the seasons was where I think I started where it was like, okay, you know, we've had farmers almanacs for thousands of years or at least hundreds of years. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And, you know, they weren't Googling shit. So it's like, how were they able to predict all these cycles, right? you know, without the technology to such detail? And they were like, those things were incredibly accurate. Like people really, I mean, they hung their whole lives on what the farmer's almanac told you it was going to be like this whole year. Mm-hmm. And yet there's no like Willy Wonka, Wizard of Oz type figure, human figure, that's like pressing buttons to make fall become winter. 
or to make the rain come down a certain day. So it's like, well, if that stuff can all happen in a cycle and be somewhat predictable, then maybe there's, you know, universal order is God or, you know, mm-hmm. this like sacred cycles or sacred geometry or whatever. Like maybe there's, there's bigger patterns. And I think for me, it was helpful to, to bring in compassion to myself to be like, oh, maybe I'm also a seasonal fruit. Like sometimes I'm going to do better, you know, in certain seasons than others. I'm going to have cycles that maybe don't even go with the the once a year season, but like I get to have cycles within me of blooming and conserving energy, of being, you know, blossoming and ready to connect with all the plants around me or being the one with like one withered leaf. (laughs) Like I get to be all of those. Right. And just thinking about that when you say like medicine doesn't feel like healing. And it's like, medicine is very patriarchal. It's very linear. It's very pointed. And what you're talking about, like being cyclical, that's a, that's a feminine ideal, right? Like that would fall under that category. Right. And that's how healing works. We know healing isn't linear. It's like one step forward, three steps back or whatever, because of that, like cyclical nature, it's ah, the rise of the divine feminine. Here we come. I mean, I could talk for hours on that. That's one of my favorite topics. Why didn't we start with that? But everything oh, we talked yeah. about actually was already amazing. <laughs> Maybe we'll have to have a part two. Yeah, we could. We totally could. Because like, yeah, falling into the divine feminine work has shifted how I get to show up in my life, you know, and allowed me to feel like a powerful being just from being in a woman's body. And it's like, it's so sad when people don't have that connection yet. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, we're almost out of time and I have to ask you about your thoughts on wounded healer. How do you feel about that term? The wounded healer. I remember the first time I heard the term wounded healer in grad school and I could feel it in my body where it was like, ah, mm-hmm. you know, that there was a release of pressure and a sense of relief that it's okay to not have all your shit together. And I think for me on a personal level, I think they're all the only good healers are all wounded, you yeah. know, because it's like you have to have gone through some stuff to come out even a little wiser. Right. You know? And it's like, where does wisdom and knowledge come from? If not from having to like learn and make mistakes and failures. And I think a lot of times those things are traumas and wounds. Absolutely. So that's where I think maybe the term wounded healer, that those two words have to go together in a really beautiful way where it's like, yeah, that's where the healing works. It's like somebody who can genuinely guide you because they're not looking down from an ivory tower. They're leading you on a trail that they've at least gone on similar trails or know what trails look like. Right. And side note, Livia actually sent me this course from Pacifica, Pacifica Graduate Institute. I think that's what it's called. That's all about racialized trauma. Well, at least that was the title of it. And I show up to it and it's a bunch of youngians, which you're like, you're all in your head. So that's its own thing. But what I think is so interesting, the woman who's teaching the course is like one of like four or five black Jungian therapists. Her mission is calling attention to Jung's racism. It seems like they worship uh, Jung. That's oh what yeah. I'm seeing. Oh it's yeah. really weird. I mean, it's not that white supremacy at its best, though. It's like some figure who knew something becomes this like, deified answer was I'm like yo he was a dude who was racist and also flawed and I'm sure a thousand other ways like right let's not pretend like that one guy had all the answers right right 
Yeah. And this, this course has just been really interesting to hear from the Jungian lens, but it's so academic and that's so not the way that I think about things, but I can pull out like all the spirit within it. But it's so interesting to hear her like call attention to, oh yeah, like Jung said this and this one paper or book he published or something like that. And then teasing out how do we hold that when clients bring it into the room. It's really interesting. Jung, you were being canceled. No. <laughs> I mean, I don't know enough about him to cancel him. I can't right. say I'm a fan of some of the stuff from Alfred Adler, and Young was Adler's teacher, so mm-hmm. like Young couldn't have been all bad. Yeah, right. No one is all good or all bad, except for Donald Trump. He's all bad. Agreed. Agreed. <laughs> yeah. I try to do empathy work around that sometimes, where I'm like, he's a wounded little boy who didn't have attention, which is probably true, but... With the amount it of harm caused, I don't need to sit with empathy very long there. <laughs> right. Did you read his cousin's book or his niece? No. It's fascinating. I'll send you a link. We can talk about that later because that's its whole thing. But yeah, he was a very, very ignored little person. I mean, you can see it in his own family of how he's ignoring and, you know, bestowing favors. Like, oh, here's the cycle repeating. Of, a, yep. of people who are disconnected from the land, they're disconnected from other people and other, you know, outside their own bubble and what life looks like or what's important. Like, there's so much disconnection from self, from others, from community. Like, oh, yep. that's contagious. And it happens intergenerationally mm-hmm. so strongly. Right. Yeah. <sighs> well, this has been amazing. You're just a lovely human. Well, thanks. Well, where do you want people to follow your work or support your work? How can people support you? Well, I'm just taking a second to feel how juicy that feels being asked Hmm. how people can support me. What a yummy question. Yeah, I don't know if if I have good answers. I I do have an Instagram body of knowledge. Oh, do I already? I think I already follow you without prompting from Olivia. My Instagram, I started this because people use, well, talking about eating disorder clients. I wanted to tell my clients some great accounts to follow that were healthy at every size or diet, you know, intuitive eating. And then I wanted to tell people where to follow, you know, fat, sexy people so they could see body diversity and then radical queer stuff. And so it started as a place for me to tell clients who to follow. And then it morphed into every time I was like kind of angry, I just do posts there. So I almost think it's not a great representation of true Celeste because I'm like, Dang, Instagram professional stuff is hit about white supremacy, about all sorts of things. People are welcome to follow that. I, I mean, I think there's some good knowledge there. But yeah, I'm not, it's not an Instagram account that's necessarily all feel-good stuff. It's a disrupt the script kind of place. Mm-hmm. You know, and I've got a, a web page, but it's just like my private practice page. But yeah, people are welcome to reach out. I love, I love answering questions. I love referring people to help them find resources mm-hmm. they're looking for. Just like that young resident assistant I was, you know, mm-hmm. almost 20 years ago now. I still enjoy that. So people are more than welcome to find me and reach out. Well, thank you for being here. Thank you for all that you do. And I'm so delighted to, I hope we can be friends now. Totally. Yay! Thank you so much to Celeste for being our wonderful guest today. If you want to find out more about Celeste and her practice, you can visit us at www.headhearttherapy.com slash podcast. Thanks as always to Andrea Clunder and the Creative Imposter Studios for editing, to Liam O'Donnell for our album art, and to Ben Mueller for our theme music. Until next time, bye-bye.